Hey, Future Karine here. This episode contains a lot of linguistic vocabulary. Sorry for that. For those of you who aren't linguistics majors or don't remember your lectures, you can check out our glossary for any terms or phrases you don't know or recognize. Don't worry, we did as well. Now, enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome back to our podcast, Much Language, Such Talk. Today, you're listening to Eva Maria and... Green. Uh, this week, we have a very special guest, Helen Kulidobrova. <laughs> Helen is currently visiting us at Bilingualism Matters from the Central Connecticut State University, where she is an associate professor of applied linguistics. Uh, in the past, she has worked on English as an additional language, multilingualism in general, and the structure and acquisition of sign languages, to name but a few. So we're taking advantage of her being here so she can tell us all about her fantastic work and answer some of the questions we've gathered. So hello, Helen. Well, hello, Eva Maria and Corinne. Pleasure to be here. Well, thank you very much for joining us. So, uh, how are you liking Edinburgh? Is everything okay? I am loving Edinburgh. You and really, the weather? Yeah, managed to get some of the worst weather we've ever had. I don't know what you're talking about. It's a beautiful sunny day outside, and it's significantly warmer than it is in the U.S. Oh, is it really? Okay. Yes, indeed. Well then, welcome. <laughs> We're beautiful glad... and sunny Edinburgh. Yeah, glad you're enjoying this. It never rains. <laughs> So yeah, but let's dive right in while you're here. So uh, how about you tell us a bit about your research? What are you working on right now? Well, there are a couple of projects going on at the moment, one of which is a project on acquisition of Icelandic sign language. This is the main project for my sabbatical year, which is why I'm in Edinburgh at the moment. And the other project is on uh, formal properties of American sign language. And I'm looking at the structure of the nominal domain. I'm looking at mass count, distinction, and coordination. That is very cool. I agree. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, super interesting. So um, how did you develop your interest in linguistics, language sciences? Like, when did that start? Oh, linguistics and language sciences in general. So I grew up in uh, the Soviet Union. And as you might know, in the Soviet Union, most people spoke Russian, irrespective of where they actually lived. And I was always puzzled by that, right? So it didn't matter where you went. I, gr I grew up in Ukraine. It didn't matter where you went in the Soviet Union. Everybody always spoke Russian. Some people also spoke some other languages, and I was always puzzled by that. So I thought, well, I want to know how is it that people manage to speak Russian so well? So I thought I'd study that. That's basically how that happened. Cool. So personal elements. Exactly. Yeah, very cool. So uh, you still use Russian or not? <laughs> or not Russian. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but are you, are you an active user of the Russian language? Yes, I am a fairly active user of the Russian language, although my Russian is not as good as it ever was. Obviously, I don't, um, I'm not an active participant in the Russian speaking community, um, unfortunately, in the US. So it has attrited quite a bit. Um, my other language is Ukrainian. I grew up in Ukraine. My Ukrainian has attrited quite a bit um, these days. I have almost no lexical recall. It's unfortunate. I'm sure if, you know, I'm sure given some support, it would come back. We know how this works. That's that's really sad uh, for the language, but that's where that is. Yeah, it's, it's just one of those things that if you don't use it, you kind of lose it. But over time, it does. It, it, as you said, it'll, it'll come back. So is it just that the area that you're living at the moment, there just isn't a Ukrainian population? Well, actually, so I live in Connecticut. Connecticut has a fairly robust Ukrainian population, and it is, I just have not uh, pursued my Ukrainian. That said, uh, I have traveled quite a bit in the U.S. and where I had lived before, there was no Ukrainian. And I left my Ukrainian behind 
probably about in sixth grade and had not returned to it. And that may be part of the ah, reason. Yeah. yeah. There's something about when you get older, it's that a, your new adult exactly. community. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I oh personally for myself like my finish is very basic. It's like under the age of four, so I can ask you if you want a sandwich or something like that. But that's, precisely, it's just yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. So, but now you're not really focusing on spoken languages, so you're mostly working on sign languages, right? That's correct. How so? How did you initially um, create an interest in studying sign languages? It was just like. You just saw it one day and it was fascinating or was it like a slow kind of kind of a slow burn into the sign languages? Well, it's really a fairly interesting story. When I started in my PhD program, I actually thought I was going to return to Ukrainian. I went to the University of Connecticut to study with Jelko Boshkovich, who is a fairly well-known Slavicist. And so I thought, well, I'm going to study syntax of uh, Russian and Ukrainian. And this would give me a chance to return to this Ukrainian that I thought I had forgotten. And that is where I where I encountered American Sign Language and its acquisition and its syntax. And I thought, oh my goodness, what is this? And the person who later became a um, supervisor, one of the supervisors of my PhD program, had just written a grant to study bimodal bilingual acquisition, and she uh, was teaching a course on such issues. I enrolled in the course and I became fascinated with the topic, and I have not looked back since. Oh wow, that's really amazing! Is it, it was, was that it. where you studied your PhD? Was there a large deaf community in the area? Or? There's a fairly sizable deaf community in um, you know, around the University of Connecticut in Connecticut because um, American Sign Language is actually born in Connecticut. American oh. Sign Language was born at the American School for the Deaf. Oh wow! And that's which, in Connecticut. It is in Connecticut in Hartford, Connecticut, which is actually four miles away from the school where I currently teach. Oh wow! Okay. I, I know. Isn't it American Sign Language? I think it's the closest to French Sign Language. Is that true? Well, it is pretty close to uh, French Sign Language. Well, insofar as things are close to anything, it is <laughs> it is related to French Sign Language. Yes. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so this is how you initially became uh, interested in sign language. So did you then take courses in sign language? How did you learn? Is it just you got to the community? Did you take classes? What did you do? Yeah. So I approached uh, Diane Lillamartin, and that was a professor in question. I approached Diane and I said, Diane, how do I get to be um, your research assistant in this incredible looking project. And she said, well, you have to learn about the language and you have to study the language itself. So that is what I did. I enrolled in courses and I pursued uh, this interest both professionally and personally. And um, cool. that it's is what had cool. happened. Yeah. yeah. So do you still sign? I do. Yeah. I do. Although I must say that my sign is nowhere near as what I would like for it to be, right? Because being a, um, a researcher of the language is not the same as being the user of the language, unfortunately. Although obviously one would want this to be the same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It'd be nice if we could um, have the sign languages be more visible in our regular, like everyday lives. You really don't see it that often. It's quite surprising. Of course. That that is, uh, well, it's not entirely surprising, right? Given the fact that it's a small population. Well, it's not that small. There's a number of deaf people around us, but the hearing community um, is much more dominant than the deaf community, right? Yeah. And the issues um, of autism, that's the common term. Mm-hmm. Um, prevail still, and the hearing community has been known to oppress the deaf community quite a bit. And if you know we don't see deafness, we don't know it exists. Mm. Yeah, so a lot of people not in the deaf community are probably quite oblivious to the fact that there might be signing people around them and they don't even exactly. recognize exactly. it as such. Yeah, Obviously, it's not visible. Yeah. 
Although it should be. It really should be. Sure. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. but you can't see deafness, right? You can't see deafness because it's not uh, it's not uh, apparent on one's face. It's not apparent on one's body. And therefore, you don't know that people around you may be using different language. Yeah. That's really interesting. So when you started learning uh, ASL, um, did you notice that it had an effect on your spoken language or your gestures? Oh, absolutely. So not only did I notice this, it, lo lots of people around me noticed this. So it turns out, um, and research also says this, that people who learn how to sign start changing their gestures. And the question, of course, is why that might be. And it's not entirely um, surprising, right? Um, hearing people use gestures and um, sign languages go through a gestural system, and therefore it's not strange that the gestural system might change. But also other things started happening. All my other languages that I wasn't very good at started changing as well, right? So I would try to make a sentence in Spanish, and all of a sudden my sentence would resemble the sentence in American Sign Language, right? So oh, all wow. these sentences were bleeding into one another. And this you is mean by like sentence structure? Or sentence structure, oh, that's wow. right. Yes. And so this is what we know about third and fourth language acquisition, right? The languages go, uh, where, where are we going next? What Where are we reaching? So this was interesting to observe. And that made me look to L3 acquisition, for instance, which is now something that I'm, I continue being fascinated by. That's what I'm working on. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah. You kind really of spoken about um, our next question, which is when um, people learn sign languages, do their gestures and there's when they're speaking, does that change? Um, do you, is it, would you say from your experience that it was your gestures when you were speaking start to uh, symbol, like not symbolize, look more like um, actual signs or would you actually sign at the same time? Or how would you say, what, what do you think that change for gestures is? So research, uh, research says uh, both things, right? So it depends on the level of proficiency. People behave either one way or the other. So uh, folks who are just starting to sign be become those people whose gestures amend a little bit, right? They're like, look funny a little, right? But we also know this from L2 research on gestures of gestures who are hearing, learning spoken languages. So we know gestures, gesture system changes in general, and you expect sign languages to affect this. My students point out, I've, nev I've never watched my hands, but my students point out that my hands look like they're trying to sign <laughs> right? when I when I talk, especially when I talk about sign languages, like all of a sudden I start signing and talking simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Now, also research suggests that if you are a highly proficient signer and you have been signing from fairly early age, let's say you're here in child of deaf adults, you are in this respect, you're different than even a proficient signer who started late. So there must be a proficiency effect or age of acquisition effect here. Yeah, it's always, it's really interesting because I, I know that in the UK, this might be a little bit wrong, but if I'm right, what it is that most of the acquisition of sign languages in school is um, sign-supported English. Mm -hmm. And then usually it's once they hit 18 and they're like more engrossed or ingrained, I'm not sure which one of those words is the right one, um, within the deaf community, that's when they actually start learning British Sign Language. 
Um, so it's interesting in that way also that their education also changes that the way that they speak a little bit. So like if they're lucky enough to start learning a sign language from a younger age, it's possible that even their sign language when they start learning proper BSL is also already a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So that's another fun thing to look at, isn't it? That seems that seems strange. So they do sign supported English until they're 18? I think it, dep I think it depends on the school. Mm -hmm. I'm, I wish I knew a, a little bit more about the, the education system. Um, that's not what happens in the US. Yeah, right. Since you do research on American sign language, uh, you probably get the question quite a bit whether sign languages in general are mutually intelligible. So if a user of American sign language travels to Europe, whether they'd be able to understand Italian sign language, for example. So what? how many languages, sign languages are there? And what is, well, yeah, is, is there such a thing as mutual intelligibility? amongst the well, languages. This is an interesting question, right? So I usually get one of, uh, I, I usually get a slightly different question. I usually get, um, is there a universal sign language? Mm. And the answer to that is a resounding no. Yeah, that was right? a question we were going to ask exactly. as well. Is, uh, I, I like yours a bit better, right? Uh, is there a mutual Thank intelligibility? <laughs> right. Uh, it, it, is, it is in a way related, but it's not the same question, right? So... So let me back up and, and start with mine, if you don't mind, or the one that I usually get. Well, I mean, why would we expect a universal sign language? If you if we expect a universal sign language, we should also expect a universal spoken language. We don't have a universal spoken language for exactly the same reason we don't have universal sign language. Wherever we have a group of people, they develop their own language, and therefore those languages will not be mutually intelligible because people are not next to one another. Right. That would be sort of the idea. Okay. So now let's get to sign languages. How many are there? We don't really know. It depends on how one counts. Anywhere between 138 and 380. Oh, wow. Oh, that's a, such a small range. <laughs> right. Oh well, it depends on how you count, right? Yeah. There's, you know, development of these languages happens all day, every day, right? We, we keep discovering them in various places, in fairly isolated places where there's congenital deafness to, for a variety of reasons, endogamous marriages. But um, is there mutual intelligibility? There is, to some degree, mutual intelligibility between languages like LSF, which is French Sign Language, and Italian Sign Language, and perhaps, maybe to some degree, American Sign Language. Now, why might that be? Well, is there mutual intelligibility between an Ita Italian and Spanish? The answer is sort of yes. Yeah. These languages are related. Now, does that mean that everybody understands 100%? The answer yeah. is no. no. Right. But languages are topologically related. And is the distance, however we measure this distance, between um, French sign language and Italian sign language closer than distance between French sign language and American sign language quite likely to be the case. Why? Because languages are closer geographically. Geographically, yeah. And there is an extra infusion into American Sign Language than we see from Italian Sign Language, sign language versus French Sign Language. And this is how kind of these measuring devices work. Right. This work needs to continue needs to continue. It needs to more of it needs to be done. There's been, you know, robust amount of um, historical linguistics that has been done on spoken languages, but not the same amount has been done on some languages simply because the field is so young, right? The field itself 
is, you know, less than 100 years old, right? It's just much younger field. So there's more to do here. Is there, is there mutual intelligibility? Yes. But is it only due to topological differences or topological similarities? Well, also maybe not. Because if we think about this, there is something fundamentally similar to all of us human beings that use gestural systems, right? Sign languages are gestural. I'm not saying that sign languages are pantomime. I'm not saying that they're all gesture-based. But there are some things that we all use when we, when we utilize our bodies that spoken languages do not use, right? Things that are just iconic, right? So if I show you a sign for tree you may not figure out that that's a sign for tree. But as soon as I tell you that that's a sign for tree, you go, oh, that's right. That makes that all makes sorts sense. of sense. That makes yeah. all sorts of sense. Right. And if I show you a sign for deaf that has to do with ears and mouth, you're like, I don't know. Oh, wait a minute. That may be a sign for deaf. Well, in American Sign Language, that's a sign for deaf. But in British Sign Language, that's a sign for hearing. Ah, oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's complete difference. Well, that is yeah. Complete difference. Complete but, opposites, yeah. Right. But it relies on these iconic pieces that you could sort of pull in the real world in the same way you cannot do in spoken languages, right? You just point to certain things, right? So there may be this mutual intelligibility that relies on these items in the world yeah. that we can pull on. So perhaps that's where the mutual intelligibility might kind of come into place. So the short answer to this question is there may be some mutual intelligibility that people have called the dinner paradox, where you can put deaf people into the room, put them around the dinner table, and after a certain amount of time, they will figure out a way to communicate. <laughs> it won't be perfect, but it will figure something out. Yeah. Right? The way hearing people just won't be able to. Yeah. So yeah, speaking about mutual intelligibility, there are like all these small things that we have in spoken language. We also talked about the gestures as well. So do those kinds of like, I guess, probably it's more about culture than it is actually about the spoken language itself. But do like certain sign languages have more characteristics to their specific cultures? Like, do in some way American Sign Language users have bigger signs like denoting that they're louder at first stereotype or do <laughs> Italians maybe like do they have more certain types of expressions that like they just use in a faster pace like because stereotypically Italians use their hands more. Does that kind of um, culturalness uh, translate to sign languages as well or is that just completely ignored? <laughs> So the speed, I can't really tell you anything about, but I, um, and, and, and loudness, as it were, I may be able to say something about, <clears throat> and, and also the cultural specific signs, perhaps I can. So let, let's think a little bit about how sign language vocabularies may be born, right? So how do we, how do we get sign languages um, in general, right? So if you think about how sign languages may be, m might be evolving in principle, right? If, if, especially in the middle of a hearing community. So you have a couple of deaf people or one or two deaf people and they're meandering about or they're existing in the world of the hearing people that are gesturing. So they will take on gestures, items that are gestures already for the hearing people, right? So this would be points, obviously people point all day, mm -hmm. every day, but also... Um, 
in um, you know in in Spanish speaking uh, countries there are signs for cheap right and this has something to do with touching the elbow in um, <laughs> in um, Italy people uh, use this um, what's called artichoke like you you grab your hand and you kind of fold it together and then you shake your hand and you go what what is going on here and then you ask <laughs> this question right people do various kinds of things that that carries semantic information. It's not sort of your bead gesture, but has the semantic information. And deaf people observe this and they take this into their communication system. We know this. We um, we know that development of various sign languages, particularly new sign languages, as proceeds as such. This um, this work is done by Marie Capola and various other people that have documented emergent sign languages. And so what we might assume would happen is that... Um, such pieces would turn into lexical items. So that's one piece, right? And you would look to such lexical items and you go, oh, this is just what we saw as gestures in the hearing community, but now they've taken on the life of their own and they may mean something similar, but not exactly. And then they grammaticalize and then they have very particular distribution and they're no longer anything like what the hearing community attributes to them even though they may look like it a little bit, but they just ha they have very different um, flavor to them. So that's one piece. But uh, there's something to be said about also sort of what you call the loudness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Is that a thing that exists? Well, yeah. it very much does so. So for example, or, or size of space, so what, was loudness, um, what, what would loudness translate to? So it's the size of the signing space, for example. Um, in um, every sign language, just like in every spoken language, one might expect dialects. Among um, American signers, we have at least two dialects, and that is um, what has been called uh, mainstream ASL and black ASL. So in spoken languages, when we have phonology, we're specifically talking about the speech sounds that we're making, all those individual sounds or like morphemes and putting all, not mor morphemes, <laughs> phonemes. Um, but so sign languages, since they don't have, you know, outward sounds being made, what does exactly does the phonology of sign languages mean and what does it entail? Yeah, so phonology of sign, um, sign languages works very similar to the phonology of uh, spoken languages. Phonology is really not about sounds, right? So, so it sounds like it would be about sounds, but it's actually <laughs> not, right? If you, as soon as you start learning about phonology, in the first 20 minutes of that course, you realize it's not really about sound. It's about the contrasts. It's about what's happening inside the mouth. It's really not, you know, it's, a, it's about these pieces that you can break the sound to and it, but your, your perceptual kind of perceptual acuity, right? So it's the same for, for sign languages. So phonology of sign languages is about how you look at contrasting parts of the sign. And so what turns out matters here is whether the contrast is in hand shape or in location or in movement or orientation. These are the, the pieces that, that matter, right? And whether... It's the movement that um, is at the heart of the syllable or something else. And how can you tell? And what rules govern such changes, right? This is, in the end, uh, becomes what phonology in sign languages is about. Everything else is exactly the same. 
Would you say that the, sorry, that the phonemes um, for, I know in American Sign Language, um, you sign mother on your chin and you sign father on your forehead. Is that, that that's correct? That's so right. Is, it that, is that considered a phoneme that, you know, the bottom half, I don't know if it's the bottom half of your face or if it's your chin specifically, or is it the top half of your face then is masculine? Is that considered a phoneme or is that just specifically positioning? So it's not about masculine and feminine. Sorry, can you say masculine and feminine? It's not really phonemes, right? It's just it, masculine and feminine would be gender features, right? Mm-hmm. So, and so that's a slightly different kind of information. Now we, we might want to ask whether what's on the face or where the position or what position of the face you have would kind of give you the gender information. And that's not phonological, right? Gender information is morphological. It's somewhere mm, else. Good point. <laughs> right? Um, now, can we say that American Sign Language kind of gives you that information anywhere on the body? The answer to that is a no. Now, other languages have been argued to provide such information for some nouns at least. So Japanese Sign Language does. Japanese Sign Language has gender in some for some lexical items, hmm. but not for others. American Sign Language doesn't, to my understanding, British Sign Language or Icelandic Sign Language doesn't either, right? American Sign Language doesn't either. It's just a pure accident. Well, it's not entirely pure, but it's <laughs> fairly accidental that some things are on the on the top part of the hand from the face, and other things are on the bottom part of the face, and some things are on the shoulders, and other things are elsewhere. Some of these things are iconic, and others are not. Some things are completely arbitrary, and other things are not. Okay, so you just mentioned that sign language sign languages consist of so much more than just normal gestures, right? And I would assume that people like myself that are not very familiar with sign languages um, would always assume it's just about gestures, but it's so much more than that, right? With the direction and the orientation and the movement Mm -hmm. and um, even mouthing, right? right. Tell us a bit more about all these aspects and how they tie in together. Yes. So lots of people, when they first um, think about signing, right, when they start, first think about learning how to sign, they think, oh, this is just going to be learning what's on the hands. And uh, research suggests that particularly, you know, learners, um, second language learners of sign languages, when you start sort of testing them and you start looking to where their eyes are pointing, the eyes are like glued to the hands. And they're like, <laughs> oh my, my goodness, I got to f- figure out what's what's on the hands, right? But turns out the better you get at um, the sign, the farther away from the hands your eyes wander. Turns out that's because what's on the hands is only part of the story. The other part of the story is called non-manual. And non-manual information involves what's happening on the face, which is eyebrows, and what maybe is on the nose, whether or not there's some squints, whether or not there's lip movements, whether or not your tongue is protruding, showing you the different the adverbial difference between how people walk, for instance. Wow. Um, Wait, you use your tongue to explain how people walk? Uh, that's right. You could actually kind of put your tongue out and show whether things are done leisurely versus not. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, the other thing is whether your body shifts to one side or the other that assumes a character in the story. And when you shift roles, um, other things. I'm mind blown. Other things that occur um, is mouthing, as you point out. So the difference between certain um, 
certain items could be simply mouthing and all of a sudden you switched categories, right? And so nice landing sign language, as far as our data can tell. Now, this is fresh off the grill data. <laughs> it looks like um, the difference between nouns and verbs is quite literally just mouthing. Oh, wow. Right. So if that's not present, Right. You can't tell the difference. Wow. So there's a lot that's going on. And what that really means is if you are a proficient signer, you got to look not just on the hands. So you got to incorporate and integrate all sorts of information. So proficient signers use their peripheral view as much as they do sort of focused viewpoint. Yeah. Has there been... Uh, studies on like eye tracking of yes. proficient because oh, that would be so interesting. Yes, there's plenty. That is actually, yeah. Yes. So lots of work um, has been done in various labs. Many labs look at this um, for various sign languages. So people have looked at this um, in um, the sign language of, ne of the Netherlands, um, um, British sign language. So a lot of this kind of work is done at um, um, DECAL in London. A lot of this work is done um, in... Um, Germany, a ton of such work is done in um, um, in California in Karen Amory's lab. I know what I'll be reading this afternoon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. these are our bedtime reads now. Yeah. Um, so, other than those um, individuals who have you know hearing disabilities, deafness, um, can sign languages aid? Um, those who have other types of language impairments or language developmental issues, such as maybe someone who's autistic or maybe someone who has selective mutism. Can we use sign languages for that? Or does that kind of change what exactly the sign language is? So let me, let me address the first thing you said. I heard you say hearing disabilities. Yeah, I was trying my yeah. best not to say that. I had yeah. written it down. Yeah, and yeah. It says it so, right here. So yeah. no, I understand. So lots of people uh, say such things. And I appreciate the opportunity to, to like take a two-second detour on that. Um, Please educate us. Most deaf people, um, well, all deaf people that I know and many other probably will say something like this. I'm not disabled. I'm deaf. It's not a hearing disability. Mm -hmm. Well, is the, there's a difference, I'm assuming, or at least I, in my mind, that I've created a difference between deafness and hard of hearing. Yes. So hard of hearing, I would say, is kind of a hearing disability, but but is not. I You should probably ask the deaf people, but the true. deaf people <laughs> that point. I work with would not say that. Okay. They would say that they're just hard of hearing. Okay. Um, but none of them would call themselves hearing disabled. Good to but know. They were not, because being hearing disabled suggests that they're broken hearing people and they will tell you that they're not that. Yeah. Yeah. That is a good yeah, point. I would, yeah. yeah. We wouldn't yeah. call ourselves visually disabled. Or, like, or they, like they might call yeah. you broken deaf people. That, that would be... <laughs> I'll allow it. <laughs> yeah, right. But that's how that would go, right? Yeah. All right. So here's one. Um, but um, so boom. That let's, let's call <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. So no more, no more hearing impaired. No more mm -hmm. hearing disabled. These are all deaf people. Deaf yeah. and hard of hearing is the preferred term in the deaf community. Mm -hmm. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Um, so, but to your point, um, uh, outside of people who are deaf and hard of hearing, is there anybody else in any other population for whom sign language is a good option? Right. That's mm -hmm. that's yep. your question. I think this is a great language for anyone to the degree that we think multilingualism is a great idea for anyone, for any reason. Let's go ahead and do it. So. Um, we know that. 
It is a full-fledged language that goes through a different modality, a modality that may not be disordered. Can you quickly just describe what a modality means? Sure. Uh, we have a spoken modality and the gestural modality. So that that's that's it, right? Yep, so perfect. we have yeah. So there may be some issues with one of the modalities for whatever reason, right? Some some clinical issues, right? So something wrong for whatever reason, physically, uh, with the spoken language modality, something wrong with vocal tract articulators. But nothing is wrong with the gestural modality. So why not give the child a language through the other modality, mm -hmm. right? We know that multilingualism is good for the kid. The kid is going to get language another way, right? So in my view, it's another language. In my view, it's going to be good for the kid one way or another. It will aid in the communication strategy. It, it adds an additional set of communication strategies. It expands vocabulary items. We now know research suggests that for people with various types of clinical profiles, adding a sign language aids. The answer to that is yes. <laughs> <laughs> Too long to read. Yes, it definitely is a good idea to advocate for um, everyone, really, to learn a sign language. Um, I had actually, I'd written a little comment here because I actually specifically had written little D-deaf and large D-deaf, um, big D-deaf also, yeah, um, <laughs> which uh, is not, I, I guess, since I have, I've taken two terms in university uh, learning American Sign Language, so I have a very small in in that. Um, would you want to describe the differences between the two of them are? Because I feel like you might be able to give a short description of that a little bit better. So you're asking me the difference between a small D deaf yeah. and a capital D deaf. Yes. Very simple. So the question Karina is asking, what is the difference between big D deaf and small D deaf? The answer is very simple. Um, traditionally, at least, the small d deaf uh, refers to um, the hearing status. The capital D deaf uh, refers to the culturally deaf person, right? A member of a, a culturally deaf community. Mm. That's it. Mm. Yeah, it's um, I, I, I've spoken about deafness a little bit on um, like online into forums and things like that. And I've had people who are just like, why are you doing this? And I was like, oh, I'm not the person to definitely say this for sure. But like, this is what I know about it a little bit. Uh, but yeah, so it's it's really amazing because it's like, I feel like it, a lot of the general hearing population don't realize that deafness is also a part of a community. Um, it's not just, it's a culture. Um, so it th those kinds of things would be great to have the opportunity to see that more often. It, you know, there's there's been a there's been quite a bit of a discussion of whether or not this is a whether or not this is something that should be continuously used in the literature. I am not the right person to be having this discussion with. Right here's a hearing woman, so <laughs> yeah, uh, bring a deaf person to this podcast, and that, it would, that be, would be a yeah, better I, conversation. That said, um, that said. <clears throat> There is something we should be keeping in mind, right? There's this constant, uh, there's this constant discussion about deafness, right? And deafness usually um, points to 
something about the body, right? Mm-hmm. It's a body-based politicking. It's body-based discussion. It's it's and, and therefore, in, in about two minutes, it turns into a conversation about disability, where deafness with a big D is about cultural identification. It's about the language that's used um, in the community. Mm-hmm. It's about cultural references. It's about identity. So... Um, can one be both hearing and deaf simultaneously? Deaf with a capital D, that's an interesting question to be asking a deaf person, mm-hmm. right? But can one be deaf with a small d and be hearing um, culturally, right? That's also the same kind of mm-hmm. question to be asking, right? Because one is about the body and the other one is about the cultural identity. Yeah. Um, which kind of uh, very well leads us into our next question, which is um, there's a bit of a controversy um, about cochlear implants um, and, you know, teaching young children sign languages. So why do you think it is that like parents, teachers and doctors advocate for cochlear implants instead of teaching young children sign language? Well, (laughs) (laughs) it's a big question, right? It's a big big one. It's a big one. Well, I think, I think, um, I mean, we live in the hearing world, right? And most people um, who are parents and doctors and teachers are hearing people who think that everybody should be hearing. And they can't, quite frankly, envision the world who, where, no, where somebody might not want to be hearing. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. how is it possible that you wouldn't want to be hearing? Because certainly, if you are not hearing... Uh, it, it you must be full of sorrow, right? <laughs> right. My uh, my inc- my ASL instructor tells the story where when she had her second child who was deaf, and she herself is fifth generation deaf, and her husband oh, wow. is deaf, a second generation deaf, if I recall correctly. Uh, you know, she she said the doctor walked into um, the room with a baby. Um, who had just been diagnosed deaf, right? Because it's a neonatal um, um, test and said, I'm so sorry to tell you the child is deaf, right? And she looked at him and she's like, look around. Like Like, say congratulations, (laughs) right? Welcome the family, right? But but people don't get it, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know that the doctor meant to be malicious, but people just think, look, how can nobody can imagine the world in which somebody would just not want to be Accessing the wonderful hearing world, right? That's part of the reason, right? It also makes conception that most deaf people are completely deaf as well, right? Well, but that's not the point, right? Yeah. I don't know about that. Yeah. I just think about the fact. So, so the big part of the story is that just about everybody who advises are hearing people mm-hmm. who think that everybody should be hearing wants yeah. to be hearing like They're how could they not? So much exactly. Yeah. So that's part of the story. Yeah. So the other part of the story. <clears throat> I think is that um, there is this misunderstanding still, I believe, that um, ASL or any sign language is a natural language, right? And not just a communication system Mm. that somehow kind of gets the child to something, right? That's spoken-y, right? Uh, In lieu of something else, Mm -hmm. right? And and also, I think there is this... um, lack of knowledge, which I think we as linguists need to sort of continue pounding sometimes into Uh the heads of general population, (laughs) 
that the first year of life is the most important year of life for a child. Mm -hmm. Because in reality, nobody, to my knowledge, nobody is allowed to implant the child until almost the end of the first year of life. Okay, so they the, have to be over the age of one. They have to be close to the age of one or in some countries over the age of one. Okay. Okay, well, so what this means is that hearing parents who choose to pursue the cochlear implant will not be communicating with the child oh, for the first year of their life. Because that's... the vast majority of parents who are presented with this cochlear implant option option they're presented with it as an option yeah right it's this other option it's not sort of uh let's incorporate sign and mm -hmm. um and it's an either um, or it's it's an either or and so this this is really a problem right so that's part of the story i think yeah. so since you mentioned that the first year is quite mm. uh important right sure. in, in a yeah. child's development um And it's always said that the younger you are, the easier it is to learn a language. And that's debatable, but... Mm. Um, Not entirely true, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So would you say that if you want to learn a signed language, you should start rather early as well? Or can you be successful? Like a, like a Can you become a proficient user of sign language, even if I were to start as a mature student? You can become a proficient user of any language at any age. So I must say, Thank um, you. my um, oldest student, when I when I used to teach English as an additional language, my oldest student to ever enroll in my class was an, an Argentinian woman by the name of Elsa, who was 73 years old at the time. Oh, fantastic. Good on right. her. Yeah. So that said, uh, sign languages are just like spoken languages in that they're languages you can start whenever you wish. And you, in some sense, have a leg up because you have already been using your gestural system for a wee bit. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's very so true. So not that it makes it easier to learn a sign language, right? Because it's another language, so it doesn't matter. But in some sense, you already have a start somewhere. Um, so uh, that said, um, research suggests that in some ways, second language learners who are older do better than kids in, sec in, in just learning additional languages because they are equipped with some things that kids are not equipped with mm -hmm. because they can, you know, yeah, classify thinking. things. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. right. Arguably, the same goes for sign languages. We don't right. actually know about that quite yet because the field is so young, but it's not uh, entirely surprising. It wouldn't be entirely surprising if we were to find that to be happening. That's that's very interesting. Um, and since we're on that topic, do you think that there is a similar process? Um, I don't know if that's even comparable, but would you be able to compare the learning curve of someone who's learning a signed language to someone who's learning a spoken language like would the process be similar in like starting with vocab and then maybe word order and yeah i don't know so actually uh, people are in fact doing this kind of work for in two different ways one of which is um a cross modality which is sort of like hearing people learning sign language so it's going from one modality to another right or um Sign, signing people learning written languages, although this uh, complicates matters because you actually have to learn literacy on top, 
right? So that's a problem. And um, another kind of research um, along these lines is the kind of work that I do, which is people um, who already know one sign language and they have to go into another sign language. So the argument argument here is that the process will be quite similar. But what that looks like, the f- the field is a bit too unplowed for this, but <laughs> but but it looks like it's probably going to look very similar. Well, maybe we'll inspire some people to actually get into this with yeah. this yeah, really podcast. Hope so. I hope so. I'm inspired. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. so talking about your research, mm-hmm. um, what is it that makes Icelandic sign language different from other sign languages? So Icelandic sign language um, is in some sense very uh, similar to other sign sign languages in that it is a European sign language. It is a um, indigenous, it's a language indigenous to the place where um, the people are. So it hasn't traveled anywhere. It is um, minoritized doubly so, just like other sign languages. It is also endangered. Um, Icelandic sign language is used by about 300 deaf people and another close to 2,000 of hearing people. But it's also very special in that Icelandic sign language is, um, it's, it's also very similar to other sign languages in that it's probably about a little less than 200 years old. So, so it's, it's quite very young. young. Yeah, it's yeah. very young. It's very young. Um, but it's also very special in that um, Icelandic sign language is by law considered considered now to be the first language of the deaf community and um, their hearing families, so uh, fam- family members. So anybody who is deaf and their hearing family members are eligible for instruction in Icelandic sign language. That's fantastic. That's right. And so that's one thing that's special. And so if you're born deaf at about year one or so, you start school in Icelandic sign language. And if your parents know another sign language, you functionally grow up bilingual in mm. multiple sign languages. Bimodal, bilingual. No, you grow up unimodal, bilingual. Unimodal, sorry. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh that's right. That's right. <laughs> and if you were fitted with a cochlear implant, for instance, and you're learning Icelandic on top of it, mm-hmm. You are also growing up bimodal bilingual. Yeah. yeah. Because you also learn in wow. Icelandic. That's, uh, right. So that makes it kind of special. Yeah, that's fantastic. And the other thing that's very special about Iceland and Icelandic sign language is that all sign languages are like spoken languages, are passed along from caregivers to children, right? So from parents to children, that's how languages are passed along. And for sign languages in particular, this usually means families with, um, hereditary deafness, mm-hmm. right? So deaf of deaf is how we get languages to move along. Well, in the history of sign lang- of Icelandic sign language, there hasn't been in the history of deafness. There has been only two deaf families or deaf of deaf families in the history of the entire language. What? The first deaf of deaf uh, family was in the 19th century. And the second deaf of deaf child is currently six months old. What? So all you of the rest, all of the rest de- of the deaf uh, folk in Iceland have been receiving Icelandic as a second language, Icelandic sign language instruction from either deaf people or hearing people who have themselves been learning it from 
second language learners, mm-hmm. right? So the language is constantly in a bit of a flux. Now, it's a stable language. It's got its own word order. It's got its own vocabulary items, but it's constantly pressured by all of these new inventions. That kind of transmission is so different than spoken languages. Wow. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We don't know. (laughs) Right. And that's what makes it super special. That is very special. Given the fact that it is, by law, the first language of the country for this particular population, and yet it's constantly bubbling in this very special way. So that is the reason Icelandic Sign Language is so very special. Has someone obs- um, has someone been observing that the change? Has somebody actually been kind of monitoring the change? Or, Well, uh, my research collaborators I, and I have started doing so. So there's, Perfect. Um, there's a fairly new project where kind of paying attention to that, I am looking at the kids in this group of whom there aren't that many, but such that as that group is, we're looking at what's going on. Because if you might imagine, kids are the ones that are doing all of the inventions. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of the kids at the moment in Iceland are um, bilingual. So you imagine that there will be a vast infusion into the lexicon. So we are I can't wait to see what will happen. So exciting. Yeah. Oh, I, I can't wait for the to read this paper. That's right. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, I have uh, one more question. Um, because you mentioned word order, for example, that Icelandic sign language has its own word order and everything. Does the sign language of a place or a country, um, does that kind of correlate with the spoken language of the place or is that completely different? There is absolutely no correlation between the the spoken language and the sign language of the place. So the biggest uh, example or the best example I know of that is um, Italy. Italian sign language is head uh, final and it and Italian is head initial. What that means for the sort of in, in lay terms is the word orders are basically the opposite. <laughs> That makes it hard for interpreters, I'm guessing. Or, or, I mean, you know, the job of the interpreters take a structure of one language and map it on a structure of the other one. And why does it matter? Yeah, that's true. It's, I, I yeah. just think that it's a, it's a difficult job yeah, with any language. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's true. It's a difficult job with any language. Yeah. It's, it's a different kind of a job in a bimodal situation yeah. because. I mean, perhaps in some sense a little bit easier because you're not hearing yourself talk, right? If you're if you're doing simultaneous interpretation in a unimodal kind of scenario, so either to spoken languages or to sign languages, we don't know what that looks like sign to sign. That has never been done to my knowledge, but there's plenty of research on spoken language interpretation. And we know that one of the hardest parts of this is this phonological loop that you tie up because you're hearing yourself talk, right? And that part goes away because you don't hear yourself talk. Thank goodness, right? (laughs) So everything else is exactly the same. Oh, right. So from everything you've learned about working with deaf communities Mm -hmm. um, and sign languages uh, through your research, what would you most like the general public to know? What would I like the general public to know? Well, a couple of different things. The most important thing is that sign languages are languages right? It's not a communication system for broken people, right? It's a language. And therefore, to the degree that we think multilingualism is a good thing, 
sign languages will qualify every single time. Mm -hmm. That's one. The other thing that is just as important or perhaps even more important is that 95% of deaf kids are born to hearing families. The vast majority of those hearing families never learn how to sign. Now, if you think about that, you realize that the vast majority of deaf kids become language deprived. Mm -hmm. This is the biggest problem of them all. Because if we were to allow a bunch of hearing children to be language deprived, their parents would go to jail. Mm -hmm. But for the deaf children of hearing parents, that's called parental choice. Yep. What is it, do you think, is that stopping these parents from learning the sign language of their country and using it? Um, lack of funds, lack of obligatory funds for such situations. So imagine if, for example, the country said, oh, look, you have a deaf baby. So how about instead of those five hours that you were supposed to go to work, we're going to pay you these five hours to go to class to learn the language that you could use with your child. Mm -hmm. Imagine then if you do so, because if you were to do so, your child would grow up knowing the language. You wouldn't be able to communicate with this child. This child is that much more likely to become a productive member of the society, go to work, integrate. Everybody's happier. Mm -hmm. right? That would be a different story. That is not what we find growing up. We find segregation remains, oppression remains. This is a problem. Right? Yeah. These are the kinds of issues I wish we could make go away, right? One of the one of the lines of my research has to do with policy and equitable education for deaf and hearing bilingual kids. And this is sort of the story I like to tell. If we just sort of think about how we educate multilingual children, right? If we just change how we educate multilingual children, many societal problems would go away. Mm. This is one line of that story. Oh, boy. Do you think if we... Um started implementing that like mandatory sign language classes of like in schools so that we start at the same age that we would start learning a second language regularly do you think that would help mitigate that issue of later on if parents have deaf children um they would already have some of the the language knowledge so do you think that would help the society and helping people actually learn language when they really need it most well i i sincerely think that's the case right especially if what if what we were doing, not if what we're doing is not sign-supported speech, but actual language teaching, right? We would also be teaching children how to code switch correctly. We would be making children metalinguistically aware. We would be making children open to various types of abilities. We would be making children open to the fact that the world is full of diversity, right, and full of ways of being yeah i think that's that's a yes <laughs> well well we're definitely we're excited to see where research comes because we really hope that it can help us with all this policy thank right. you so much for doing this research thank you so much for coming in thank, yeah, thank you, you very me. much for being here yeah. thank you for having me thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode with helen we really hope you enjoyed it and that you learned as much as we did you can find out more about Helen and her research on her faculty page, uh, which you'll be able to find in a link in the description. You can also find a link to the Bilingualism and English Language Learning Lab, which Helen is the director of, um, who support language teachers and learners, where they offer workshops and consultations as well. Uh, thanks so much and ciao!